0: Welcome to the New Books Network. H.G. Wells said, If we don't end war, war will end us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. We're very pleased today to welcome Margaret McMillan to the show to talk about her important book, War, How Conflict Shaped Us.
1: Margaret MacMillan,
0: welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Before we begin, Margaret, tell us a bit about yourself. Was there someone or something that strongly influenced your intellectual development?
1: I suppose it was my parents. Um... They encouraged us all. I was one of five children. They encouraged us to read. My mother wouldn't buy a television until we could all read. And since I was the oldest of five, I grew up really basically without a television, which I think was probably a good thing. They told us stories. Um, They took us places. They dragged us to museums and art galleries. We probably complained bitterly the whole time, but it (laughs) took somehow.
0: You, uh, You write that war is the most organized of human activity, which in turn stimulates further organization of society. Explain to us, how, how does that work? And does it mean that we are somehow wired to organize for violence?
1: I think there are two things here. I think the relationship between organization and war is, is a long and intimate one and goes so back so far that it's very difficult to say really which comes first or which is the more important war itself is a highly organized activity. And and by war, I mean group violence, a, a group organized by a shared ideology, shared family, relationships, whatever, who use violence either to defend themselves or to try and impose their will on others. And so I see war in that light. I don't see it as the random violence that might happen when two people get into an argument, for example. That is violence, but not war. And when you think of War, and, and especially war on, on a big scale and, and war in the modern world, you realize, I think, almost once just how much organization goes into it. When you think of what's needed to find the equipment, make sure it's in the right place, to train the people, to organize those who are going to fight, to keep them sustained with whatever weapons, food, uh, keep their morale sustained. And this can involve and does involve a huge amount of organization. And societies that are better organized have tended to be better at war because they can use and, and draw upon the resources of their societies. But as societies have fought wars, they've also been obliged to become more organized. And so a lot of what we think of as modern government is really the product of the need by governments as governments sought to organize themselves in their societies in order to sustain a war. And so the growth of modern bureaucracy, um, even things like a census, which came in, I think, really very largely so governments could count how many people they had available to fight. This has all been stimulated by war. And so that's what I mean when I say it's almost impossible to separate the two, because the better organized you are, the better capable, more capable you are of, of sustaining a war. The more you sustain a war, the better organized you have to get. And if you don't get better organized, then we know what happens. Um, governments that can't deal with the challenges of war or other challenges such as pandemics tend to fall to pieces. And so I think history and the development of different types of societies has been hugely influenced by war, and in turn, how those societies have developed has influenced war.
0: Well, the the First and Second World Wars brought unspeakable misery and pain and and some historians and economists argue that they also brought, or at least were followed by, very positive social change. Can you explain that to us?
1: It's a hard thing to explain without sounding as if you're defending it. And what I want to emphasize is that I don't think we need great catastrophes to improve our societies, but often great catastrophes will force us to recognize what's wrong us to take measures that we might not have taken in, in more ordinary circumstances, which in the long run can be beneficial. I think we're seeing it today with the pandemic. I mean, I think we knew before the pandemic that there were various things that weren't working all that well in our societies. There was growing economic inequality and, and social inequality. I think we weren't properly preparing for pandemics. And I think we've been forced to recognize many societies around the world that we could be doing things better. And we've taken measures during the pandemic. Governments have spent money freely to sustain economies, have, have done a lot, in fact, to right some of the divisions within societies. And I think we wouldn't have done that, perhaps, without the challenges of the pandemic. And I think we have to hope that what we've learned in this period will, will persist. And I think it's very much the same with wars on a large scale, which are also a form of great catastrophe, that they can bring about very positive social changes as we are obliged collectively to make those changes if we want to survive. And So, what seems impossible in peacetime or in ordinary times suddenly becomes not just possible but essential. And Just to take one very small example, which I often use, and that's the development of new life-saving drugs. And it was known in the period between the two world wars how to make penicillin. That was discovered between the two world wars, but it was considered much too expensive to produce. No company wanted to take the risk, no government was going to invest in it. The Second World War came and suddenly, the expense was no longer an object. And so penicillin and of course other life-saving drugs were were then put into production for the war, but in peacetime they have continued to save millions of lives.
0: That's a really good point. Uh, uh, Americans have often criticized themselves Uh, and been criticized for the overuse of war as a metaphor whenever some concerted, organized action was needed, the war on poverty, the war on cancer, the war on uh, COVID. Uh, But uh, when you explain it in that context, it does make a lot of sense, and that's uh, historically the case. Although, in retrospect, many wars seem to have been ill-advised, and avoidable, even even foolish. Uh, what do you think are the major reasons and rationalizations for war?
1: I think they they probably can be put into three main categories, although, of course, they overlap. But I would say one is just greed. Um, you have something that someone else wants, and that someone else is prepared to use force to take it and you are probably prepared to use force to defend it. So if your land is attacked, you'll probably defend it, or if your homes, your families are attacked, you'll defend them. And so acquisition, greed, um, the desire to dominate others is, I think, an important part of war. But I think so too is what I'd call pride. Um, Nations go to war, or groups go to war out of pride. They feel their honor has been insulted. Um, Ideas such as nationalism can be very powerful in driving peoples to war. And of course in, in earlier periods when you had highly stratified societies dominated by a handful of aristocrats perhaps or don- dominated by a monarch who, who claimed absolute authority, wars would often be made not because most people in the particular country wanted them, but because the ruler wanted them. I mean Louis Fourteenth, who created a series of war which, which basically bankrupted France in the in the 17th century but also devastated. Much of Europe, 17th and early 18th centuries, said it was a matter of honor that war was something kings did. And I don't think he cared at all about what happened to his people or to the other peoples whom he attacked. And so I think wars can be made out of pride, out of anger, out of ideas. They can be made, of course, for, as we know, for religion, those who believe that they possess the only truth and believe that they are carrying out the will of a God will often wage war in order to achieve that end, and anyone who stands in their way should be removed if they refuse to convert. And so ideas can be very powerful, greed can be very powerful, and so can fear. I mean, you go to war sometimes when you're afraid that if you don't go to war, your very existence will be at stake. Right. Is there
0: are there characteristics of peaceful societies besides good fortune?
1: I think, yes, I think there are character- characteristics of peaceful societies. I think there are societies in which going to war is seen as a terrible failure, where military virtues are not elevated. The, you know, there are societies which are militaristic, where military virtues such as discipline, sacrifice, um, willingness to kill or be killed are seen as, as noble, and there are societies where they're seen as they're not. And I think what's been really striking is what has happened to most European societies since 1945. I think there's been a huge cultural shift, whereas Europe, as we know, was responsible for two world wars and, and fought a great many wars among its peoples down through the centuries. Somehow the experience of those two world wars has persuaded, I think, Europeans, for the most part, that war is something they don't want to do. And I think they don't no longer look to military glory. Um, young people no longer look to military glory as, as something they want. Um, there's a very interesting book by, I think, an American scholar called Sheehan called Where Have All the Soldiers Gone? And he underlines this huge cultural shift that war is something Europeans no longer admire, no longer want. Um, they have got used to peace. And, and I think the same thing has happened in my own country, Canada, you know, or, or in Britain. Britain, which still is part of Europe, um, we are no longer, also, I think, prepared to take the losses of our people of military age in a way that we were prepared in the in the two world wars. We simply don't want to see those sorts of losses anymore. Hmm.
0: But on the whole, uh, I, I mean, Europe Europe had a uh, um, unusual experience, both because of the total devastation through the whole twentieth century. Uh, and also because they collectively made a decision. So if you're not threatened on your borders, then it's easier to make peace. And in in the broad view of history, it seems that it is harder to make peace than it is to wage war. Is that a correct impression?
1: I think it is very hard to make peace. And of course, Europe has, has been in a fortunate position that it was protected during the Cold War, by the American nuclear umbrella, and it hasn't had active enemies on its borders. It certainly had those who wish it ill, including, I think, Russia under President Putin today. But it perhaps has been easier for the Europeans to, to contemplate a peaceful world. And we know that not all parts of the world have that great privilege. And war, I think, is something that is somehow easier, um, easier than peace. Uh, making peace is a long slog and it has to be constantly maintained and i think people tend to forget why we built certain institutions i mean the european union again to take the example of europe was founded its its foundations were laid in the period right after the second world war by people from different countries who thought we must never do this again we need some supranational organisation which will bring us together the un was founded very much in the same spirit and as time goes by of course we forget why we founded them people grow up. They don't know why these institutions matter. They see them as as perhaps rather inefficient and old-fashioned. And I think that's worrying. And what I'm also worried about is that we have arms control regimes, but we aren't doing much to reinforce them at the moment. And I think we face a very real danger of new classes of weapons, nuclear proliferation. And I'm not sure there's the international will to do something about it. Um, Peace is, is not always... An exciting proposition. It's it's not always glamorous. It's it's you know it's it's about agreements, it's about treaties. It's about the slow building of an international order, and it needs maintaining. And of course, we also know that when there have been very bitter wars, um, wars which have involved a great deal of hatred, civil wars, for example, which are probably among the most bitter you can get. How to bring the peoples who have fought in that war back together again is is a huge problem, and we've seen countries around the world trying to grapple with that through, for example, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, how do you repair the damage, how do you undo the hatreds, which war inevitably will create?
0: Yeah, that's a very prominent question. And, and the arms control issue is also very much uh, of concern today uh, with Iran's nuclear buildup and the uh, International Atomic Agency warning, but apparently unable to actually do anything. Well, we, yes, uh, yeah. I, no, I agree. Uh, let's let's talk about the news media and the the role of news and information uh, for a moment. Uh, the The media played a, a prominent role in influencing uh, public sentiments in the wars of the twentieth century with giant war correspondents uh, like Hemingway and Edward Armaro and Robert Capa, and of course, afterwards, uh, television. What role do you think and do you see the Internet playing in the development and conduct of war in this century?
1: Well, of course, it's much quicker, I suppose, even than the mass media used to be. I think it will probably impact how we feel about war and how we think about it in much the same way, however, that the mass media did. On the one hand, you can get the media promoting war, whipping up war fever, Um, for example, the Spanish-American War at the end of the 19th century where the Hearst press played a very prominent role in the United States in persuading a lot of Americans that the Spanish had attacked them, which I don't think was true at all, but it helped to create the atmosphere for war. But what the media have also done, and reporters have done down through the ages from the 19th century onwards, is is they've also exposed some of the failings of their own country. They've exposed war crimes. And so the media, I think, can play, and, and the internet can do the same. It can play this dual role One, in in creating sort of mass feeling and, and perhaps spreading lies, and the other revealing the truth. But I think what is dangerous, I think, increasingly about the Internet is that there's less and less common ground, that people tend to go into their own echo chambers and only go for the sites, which they know will reinforce what they already believe. And it's much easier, I think, than it was in the old days to spread conspiracy theories. I mean, as human beings, we we have a long established taste for conspiracy theories, but now it's much easier to spread them. And there's some very nasty things going on on the internet uh, every moment.
0: And and maybe this is my bias. It seems like people are even more gullible than they were in the past. And the things that people believe because they are spread on the internet just seem extraordinary to me. I I, I didn't I didn't compare them myself to conspiracy theories earlier in history. But doesn't that, do you see it the same way? That's just astonishing what kinds of things can be accepted by people, a lot of people, through the internet?
1: It does worry me. And, you know, whenever someone says, well, I saw it on the internet, as if that's the end of the conversation or the end of the argument, I worry because it seems to me we need a capacity as citizens To evaluate and to to read something and to say, no, this doesn't sound right. Where's the evidence? And I think perhaps maybe it's a failing in our educational systems, but it seems to me there's not enough of that capacity. We tend too much, I think, to take things at face value. But I think what's also happened I mean, for all the faults of the big mass media, the big old papers, the big television networks, they did provide authoritative reporting and they did do good investigative reporting. And there are very few media now who can afford to do that and so we're not getting the probing that perhaps we used to get and, and what's a real concern in, in countries such as britain and my own country canada in the u.s is the disappearance of local newspapers and so people are only getting their news from a single source they're, they're no longer getting news from a paper or a television network which would bring a variety of viewpoints and so i think the tendency for us to go into our separate um separate groups, our separate echo chambers is, is greater than ever. But I agree with you. I can't believe some of the stuff that people are believing. I mean, you've probably seen them, all these completely wild theories about what's in the vaccines and how, you know, how, it, how it's all a plot by Microsoft to control us all. It's, 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 it's madness. And I, it seems to me that, you know, that, that people aren't thinking critically about these sorts of things.
0: Yeah. Or, or there's a very deep sense of insecurity that's widespread, and people will kind of hold hold on to anything that they can yeah. that will help them feel will help them make life a little more coherent instead of chaotic.
1: Yeah, Rennie, I think that's a very good point, and I think you you you've sort of put your finger on what is what is the attractiveness of conspiracy theories, and that is they explain everything. You know, you, the world's a complicated place, and and perhaps. You know, particularly complicated at the moment with the pandemic and a changing international scene and, and domestic politics in a number of countries in, in considerable turbulence. And I think a conspiracy theory says, look, it's all explainable. You don't need to worry any longer. Here's the answer.
0: Right. And
1: that, in a weird way, is comforting. Yeah. Uh,
0: so that, that those are new problems. Uh, but some things have always been with us. And I, I loved your quote Uh, that Mussolini said war is to men what maternity is to women. Uh, What do we know about the role of gender in political leadership, in the decision to go to war, as well as a relatively new phenomenon, women as soldiers? Are they the same, or how do they differ from male soldiers?
1: Well, it's a wonderful question, or series of questions, and I'm not trying to dodge it um, when I say that it's very much a matter of debate still, um, I think if you look historically, um, you could probably say that something like 99% or more of those who have fought have been men. And I think that may be a reflection of the fact that most societies historically were patriarchal. Um, men had a commanding role and men tended to make the decisions and also tended to have cultures in which it was the manly thing to do to go and fight. Now, whether that's also somehow biological, again, this is very much an, an open argument um, and a very interesting one. I think if we look at what happens when women either get into positions of authority, did in the past and do in the present, and when they do actually fight as competence, then I think the differences between men and women get much less. And some of the great um, women rulers of the past, Catherine the Great, Maria Theresa, um, the Empress Wu of China, presided over and, in fact, often instigated wars that benefited their countries in, in various ways. And there are examples in the past of women fighting. Um, I think increasingly archeologists are finding that what they had thought was a myth, the Amazons in, in Greek mythology, in fact, probably did exist. Um, they have found tombs of warriors around the north shores of the Black Sea, for example, which contain the skeletons which they can now identify as being those of, of women. And those skeletons are surrounded by armor and often bear the marks of, of trauma, the results of forcible blows. And I think there's enough evidence that women in the past, when they have fought, have been able to do so very much as men. And certainly we've seen in the present, in the twentieth century, women more and more moving into combat roles. I mean, in in Israel you would you you have had direct experience of this, but it's happening now in the United States, it's happening in Britain, it's happening in Canada. And as far as I can see, you know, given the training, given their mastery of the weapons, women behave very much in the same ways as men when they're in the military. So it'll be an interesting, I think, to see what happens in, in the next decades as more and more women do go into the armed forces. Um, you know, the position of women has been changing in so many other areas. It's not surprising this is happening in the armed forces as well.
0: Uh, yes, and at the same time, uh, war is less and less dependent on brute strength. And more dependent on other skills and abilities. Uh, modern warfare uh, isn't just how big and strong you are.
1: No, absolutely. Um, a lot of modern warfare, in fact, is is fought at a distance. Um, doesn't even involve doesn't even involve direct combat. Um, quite often, those who are fighting each other will never see each other. But we will continue to have the other sorts of wars. I think um, the wars where you actually have boots on the ground, so to speak, where you do have people there but women you know seem to be capable of of carrying very much the same burdens of men and and have the same the same amount of stamina as men do and so i think you know it it'll be interesting again to see what sort of differences this makes to to the relationships of the genders
0: now war is awful i think every everyone would agree with that uh and it's kind of troubling that some people, many people, remember their war years as the most intense and the most meaningful years of their lives. Uh, Tell us a bit about this uh, uneasy fact of the enjoyment of war.
1: Well, I think there must be a number of factors that come into it. And I've talked to quite a few people who have been in combat. I I never have been, but I've talked to people and I've read about it. And as far as I can tell, um, there are a number of factors. One is the excitement. And there is something exciting to people, knowing that they're taking tremendous risks. And I think you see the same thing in people who race on motorcycles, who race in cars, people who climb mountains, people who do paragliding. You know, there's an intensity of experience, which you don't get in ordinary life. And so often when I read and talk to people about war, they do say this, you feel intensely alive. There's something about knowing that you might die, which makes every moment, every second enormously important, and I think I can understand that, you know, that, that sometimes you, you, you crave a sort of change from ordinary life. I, I don't know if you saw what I thought was a very good movie called The Hurt Locker, um, Yes, and I thought it got that very well. The, 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 the man who did the um, bomb disposal in, I think it was probably Iraq, and came back to the United States, tried to settle down into civilian life, and just found it incredibly dull, and went back, And I think there's that, but I think there's also this thing of comradeship. Um, And again, this comes out in in what those who have fought say, that you depend on the person next to you, as the ancient Greeks used to depend on the person carrying the shield next to them, and they depend on you. And you have a sort of intense friendship and an intense comradeship, which again, you don't get that often in civilian life. I think firefighters probably have it. You know, there, there are few civilian professions that have it. But a lot of people talk in war about this intense comradeship and how you have this sort of relationship, which you, again, don't get in in civilian life for the most part.
0: That's true. I think it was Sheehan also, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, wrote about the fact that uh, soldiers really fight for their buddies. When they're actually in combat, if you ask them, what are you fighting for? It's to protect the people who are with them. Uh, and not for ideological reasons. Um, I I was uh, surprised to read uh, this following sentence. Um, uh, A gap, another gap that opens between the war and home fronts, is that civilians often hate the enemy more than those doing the fighting. That was puzzling to me. Explain it, please.
1: Well, it was based on a number of studies that had been done, and also on some of the great war novels. Um, In All Quiet on the Western Front, the great remark novel about the soldiers in the First World War, one of his protagonists goes home and is taken aback by the ferocity with which um, normally mild-mannered civilians talk about, we've got to kill the enemy, we've got to kill their babies, we hate them all. Because as he reflects, we don't feel that at the front. We just think, here we are in this awful mess, and here on the other side are the same types of people as us, in an awful mess too. And we know we have to kill them, they're trying to kill us, but we don't particularly hate them. I mean, we're somehow in this together. And I think the further you are away, perhaps the easier it is to demonize the enemy, whereas if you are in contact with the enemy, you recognize that they are actually human beings like you. There was a very interesting study done by the Americans in the Second World War, which again found that civilians in the United States hated the Japanese. And in fact, we're we're more inclined to write the Japanese off as racially inferior than the American soldiers actually fighting in the Far East. And I think there's something, perhaps, about the shared experience. It doesn't mean that certain military won't hate their opponents, and of course, they they try to kill each other. But I think there's more recognition that war is something that catches people up, and we're all somehow caught in it, if you're actually fighting it, than if you're safely at home. Um, and it's you know that that the, you 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 can demonize the enemy because you have absolutely no sense of of who the enemy is. They just are the other.
0: How does genocide fit into your understanding of war?
1: I think genocide is often a product of war, and it is um it's not a particularly twentieth, twentieth and twenty first century phenomenon, but it's become possible thanks to the Industrialization of societies and um, the, the killing of others on a mass scale is unfortunately now much easier and much more possible than it was in the past. And I think genocide is an extension of war. It's, it's a search for an enemy, it's a search often for the enemy within. and it is using the methods of war and it's using often the language of war. you know I think I quoted that that chilling speech. I think it was by Himmler, to, to German soldiers on the Eastern Front saying, you know, you've got to do a difficult task, it's a noble task, it's very important. And it's about genocide, it's not about actually fighting the enemy. But I think the um, impulse and the language of war and the organization of war is carried over into genocide. And I think war makes genocide much easier because it serves, particularly war on a mass scale, can serve to brutalize the soldiers so that they become more accustomed to following orders to do things which they wouldn't do in peacetime. I think Timothy Snyder has written very well about this in Bloodlands, the the cruelty and barbarism on the Eastern Front, which helped to make possible uh, the genocide.
0: Finally, Margaret, uh, let's talk about today and into the future. Uh, We live in a world where China, Russia, Iran, and Turkey are making aggressive moves in various parts of the globe what in your view and no one will hold you to it so take a risk what do you think are the prospects for peace in the 21st century
1: i'd say they're probably about as they were in the 20th century you know we look back at the 20th century and see how you know ask ourselves how could they have made such a mess of it but i think we face some of the same challenges they faced in the 20th century, we have too many states that think that they can use war as an instrument of the state. And I think what's very dangerous is is you know they may feel that they're only using the threat of war to try and compel others to do what they want. But the threat of war will sometimes provoke a war itself. Um, you can't always be sure that the other side is going to think, oh, well, it's just a threat. You know, we and We can cope with it. And I think the more nations prepare for war and the more they begin to posit enemies or they begin to sort of identify those who might be enemies, I think the more psychologically they begin to prepare for it. And I always think an, an important psychological barrier barrier is crossed when you get plans being made, um, which say, you know, if we have a war with so-and-so, and when that if becomes a when. And I think by beginning to think in terms of binaries and think in terms that we have an enemy, you then begin to read everything that that other, the potential enemy, does as signs of that enmity. And I think you begin to sort of think in scenarios, um, rather simple scenarios, rather than understanding uh, the complexity of nations and, and rather than trying to try and, and build bridges to other nations. So I think we, we face a prospect where, you know, if we, if we get too many states led by leaders who think that they can risk war in this way, that, that we, we face a really weakened international order. I think any international order can only take so many mavericks or revisionists. And I think we've got it now in Putin. I don't think he wants Russia to go to war, but he's certainly prepared to risk it um, or prepared to use warlike methods. And um, We've got Erdogan, who who I think is feeling increasingly beleaguered at home and I think is, is making some very foolish statements, uh, provocative statements. And we have a China, which is behaving in an increasingly belligerent way. Now, none of those states may want war, but the cumulative effect is, I think, to weaken the international order.
0: I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear you say that, but I, I'm afraid that you're correct, that uh, we, we really haven't advanced all that much uh, since the last century. Margaret, you've, you've certainly given us a lot to think about. I want to thank you for being on the show today and sharing your important work. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye bye now.
1: Goodbye. It's it's been uh, well. It's been a pleasure, and, and uh, even if rather uh, disheartening to speak to you, I hope you know what I mean by that. But it's a grim yeah. subject.
0: <laughs> it is a grim subject, but an important one. Yeah. And um, I hope a lot of people buy your book. Uh, because it's really something that uh, concerns every individual on the globe. Thank you. Take care, Margaret. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.